You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, Vox and Hops heads? I'm Matt, the vocals of Cryptopsy, and you're listening to my podcast, Vox and Hops, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians and talk about their lives, music, and craft beer. This past weekend, I had such a great, great time, and I was truly honored and humbled by the amount of people that came out to the Vox and Hops one-year anniversary party. The room was filled with a whole bunch of Vox and Hops heads. There was some Vox and Hops alumni there. There was some old friends I hadn't seen in a long time. And Lord Worm came out and we conducted the very first Vox and Hops live interview. He was on fire. You guys are in for a treat. He was everything that I could have wanted him to be. He is truly one of the most interesting death metal legends. It was just such an honor to have Lord Worm with me there that night to celebrate one year of Vox and Hops. For all those of you who were not there this past Monday, I launched on the Vox and Hops Big Cartel, the Vox and Hops Cuffed Knit Beanie, and also the Vox and Hops 9-ounce Glassware which were both available at the party. Now you can get yours, all available in the link in the description. Also running it right now, we still have the Vox and Hops Water Makes You Rust When You're Made of Metal Long Sleeve pre-order. That's going to be up for another week or two, and then I'm going to take it down. I'm going to fulfill the orders, and that's it. I'm never making it again. This is a limited edition long sleeve. I'm absolutely in love with the artwork. If you want to support the podcast in any way, the best way to do that is through the Vox and Hops Big Cartel page, whose link is available in the description of this podcast. Without further ado, here it is. Vox and Hops, episode number 82, with Lord Worm. I warn you, what you are about to hear is very disturbing indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, Vox Hops alumni... And Vox and Hops heads, Mr. Lord Worm. We're drinking his beer. It's got a name on it. Mine says Matt. (laughs) As I mentioned, um, Lord Worm was the person I wanted to interview first because... I've, unless you guys don't know this, I am the new singer of Cryptopsy. I've been there for over 10 years, and you were the first singer for Cryptopsy. You're just a kid. Only 10 years. I think I did it for all of five. <laughs> you have a long way to go. <laughs> exactly. Classic Vox and Hops question. Take me back to your youth. Tell me about the soundtrack to your youth. What music was playing in your house when you were growing up? He used the words growing up on me. Jesus. <laughs> started with Kiss. Really? Yeah. Yeah, 1977 started with Kiss. Moved on to Black Sabbath. And then all of a sudden, Shom FM on Friday nights came out with the metal file. And then it just regressed to Merciful Fate, Slayer. And then it just got worse and worse and worse. <laughs> And that's why I've been drinking for 50 years. I started drinking in 1969 because I knew I was going to have to have practice for what was coming. So as of this past summer, yes, I've been drinking for 50 years. Longer than most of your parents have been alive. (laughs) You were saying earlier that that, uh, you started drinking at four years old. Yeah. (laughs) Because your neighbor... 
an old German fellow, left side of the house, Fred. Everyone needs a neighbor named Fred. He was drinking, I think, Labatt 50, but in 1969 it wasn't adulterated yet. It was probably still, you know, Labatt 50 the way it's supposed to be. So I had that. And then any time my folks would have people over and say, oh, what can we get you? I'd send some wine. And at Christmas time it'd be, you know, creme de mount or sherry. So yeah, I've been drinking for 50 years. It does this to you. <laughs> Your beer is good, Matt. Thank you. Cheers. Yes. Um, with all that being said, are you a craft beer enthusiast? Yes, but. And you know what the but is. But I hate this trend. The IPA trend past year. Jesus. Double IPA, any IPA, West Coast IPA, black IPA. Seriously? <laughs> I bring mine with Citra. Really? <laughs> How very special. Stop! <laughs> Take me back to that first craft beer that made you feel that craft beer was interesting, something you wanted to explore more. Oh, and I blame Steve Tebow for this. It was St. Ambroise Pale Ale. That's funny. That's mine, too. <laughs> what was it about that beer that opened your mind, that opened your palate, that the made hops. you... It was hoppier and tastier and smelled nicer. And then the other things just fell away. And then, I mean, let's face it, if you're going to be a beer slut and drink a buffet every night, you can't just stick to one. What, what is this session beer thing? <laughs> I could do a whole session drinking just this one beer. Well, why don't you just buy Moosehead and shut the fuck up? You want a session with me, you got a lineup. <laughs> and you don't stop till you're asleep. <laughs> you agree. He agrees. I, I Session beers are fun because I'm a father. Right. And I can taste... They have new session beers that are out there that actually taste like something. But there's always missing something, and it's always the alcohol. No disrespect to uh, J.F. Lejeune from Echo Session Ales. Seriously, whatever happened to Golding's Hops? Fuggles, yes, I know. Cute name. Sounds all Harry Potter-ish, but still... It tastes nice, you know? <laughs> what would be those breweries from Quebec that you'd like to explore after you did the St. Arbaugh's? Where did you go? Again, because Atibo started working at Unibrew, went Belgian style. And then, I guess, Brassard's now. And then, I mean, we're talking the 90s here, right? Exactly. So yeah. it was, uh, there were so few. And everything was neat. Everything was different. There weren't, you know, a thousand breweries each brewing their own Blanche, their own Blonde, their own Rus, and their own fucking IPA. <laughs> 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 and, the thing, and you know who I blame? I blame McCoslin. You think that they're the... the, the they're, I think they're the originators. I mean, they're Pamplemousse and they're Tangerine and they're Double and they're Black. It's a stop. <laughs> Bloody hell. So you're, gonna, you're planning a drinking night. You, you step into your depaner, your convenience store. You open your beer fridge. What are you choosing? It's a mood thing. <laughs> it really is. I'm not like, you know, what am I going to eat for supper? Eh, you know, I'll figure it out later. After I've bought it. <laughs> Take it home and say, oh, shit. Look what I bought. I might as well eat that. <laughs> I might as well have something to drink with it, too. Thing is, I mean, if you've been drinking that long, that much... You don't bother with, you know, from the light to dark, from the head... You, you know. just plow through it all in whatever order. Right, because <laughs> you know them all. 
How about when you used to go tour? I heard that you used to like just go spend all your money on beer. See, touring I hated. I really did. But there was a brief period in every day that was my vacation. My mornings and afternoons were mine. I was always the first one up. I'd go find a place to have breakfast, have my espresso and beer. <laughs> I could always follow my nose and find the right place. And then I'd find, there it is. That's where I'm spending the afternoon. So, yeah, Europe, States, Canada, that, that was a lot of fun. Because I got to sample a lot of neat shit. When we did Australia, I found a beer called Moo. <laughs> and the logo for it is a black crescent moon like this. It was good. <laughs> Let's go back to when you started screaming. How did you discover you could scream? Where did that voice come from? Uh, originally, OCD slash necrosis. I was just doing Bay Area thrash metal ish. Yeah. And we were playing a show at the Jailhouse Rock on Mount Royal one day, yeah, in oh, late 80s, early 90s. And Sylvain Oud, ex of Cataclysm, was a fan of ours, and he came to me and he said, why don't you go deeper, like deeper even than cancer? There was a cool band at the time, go deeper, go gurgly, give us some bleh. And I thought, mm, yeah, all right, I'll do that. So that's what happened to necrosis slash cryptopsy. It was Sylvain Hood's fault. He suggested it, and I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> was he someone that you looked up to? Was it someone that... No, it was just an interesting idea. It's like, why don't I go more cookie monster gurgly? No, all right, I'll try it. Oh, hey, it works. Were you always that guy that would just make voices? Always. And accents. They're fun. <laughs> but um, the, uh, the multi-voice stuff that you hear, especially, I guess, on uh, None So Vile, uh, Deicide's fault, Glenn Benton, right? His multitude of voices. I thought, I could do that. So I did. At what point did the name Lord Worm become your surname? I blame my butler for that. <laughs> <laughs> True story. 1989, a friend of mine was homeless, so he came to live with me. But he said he'd be my butler. You know, he'd do the dishes, answer the phone, get the door if anyone came. One day, a pair of little old ladies, Jehovah's Witnesses, came to the door. Ian, his name was, went to the door. Yes. Six foot four, black, tattooed. Yes. Would you like to talk about Jesus? No. Click. So then we played chess and drank tea and listened to Sodom. It was very nice. He gave me the name Lord Worm. So I took it. At what point did it become, my name is Lord Worm, I'm going to start eating worms on stage? Uh, the worms, that's Steve Tebow's fault. Most of the stuff that people associate with me, it was someone else that thought it would be a good idea and me being a good dog. <laughs> I say, okay, and then I do it. Tebow thought I should eat worms because, you know, I'm going to go in the backyard and eat some worms. So, okay. And then a friend of ours, Greg Giroux, who's now like dean of English or something at some college, uh, thought, of, hey, you know, you could have a goblet or something. So, okay. So I went to a church one night and stole one. <laughs> I still have it. <laughs> 
That's not the worst crime I've committed. <laughs> I, I've heard that you were the type of dude that would just eat spiders off of bus stops. Is uh, shad flies, actually. Okay. Uh, not so much bus stops as uh, Steve Tebow lived in La Salle at the time, and there was a pizza pizza not far, and in summertime, you know, the neon the shad flies. Yes. So I would go pick the shad flies off the window and eat them like 30 at a time in the window. <laughs> where people could see me. <laughs> Other times I'd be sitting at a bus stop. I was like, oh, hey, look, an earwig. That'll go good in my beer. <laughs> Did you know earwigs taste a little bit like bergamot? That, that taste that you get in Earl Grey tea? Just so you know, FYI, earwigs taste of Earl Grey. Just putting that out there. <laughs> <laughs> when I, I, you fed me a worm at Heavy Montreal back in the day. And you, I'm not sure if you told me the tip or if someone else told me the tip. They said, don't chew it. That would be me. Okay. So at, at what point and how quickly did you learn not to chew the worms? I already knew, you know, common sense dictates. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the fun part. So we're playing in California at some point. And Eric, bassist, previous bassist. Eric Lagua, shout out comes to me during an instrumental break and just kind of doing my, I don't know, worm thing. And he comes to me and says, Hey, wormy, check some man. You give a worm to a girl and she's all like, It's so sexy. You give to a guy, he eat it by chewing, then he go, mm. <laughs> And he's telling me this while you know, he's playing bass and closing his thing. And I thought, and I'm not wearing my glasses because you can't headbang and not lose your glasses. So I thought, all right, I'll check it out. He was right. <laughs> so, sorry, boys. Women are smarter than us. They don't <laughs> chew. <laughs> you can take that any way you want it. <laughs> it's the booze talking. That's my thoughts, yes. That's my tactic. When I learned Blasphemy Many Flesh songs, I remember the day I was looking at the lyrics, I was listening to the songs... And I called Alex O'Byrne, who was my main contact in the band at the time. And I was like, does he say all these words? Right. So did you? How did that go about when you recorded Blasphemy? Did you have the words? I've heard a myth that there's like a myth going around that you recorded sounds and then wrote lyrics afterwards. What happened? Everything you hear somehow in that jumble of partial syllables and phonemes is a word. And it's the words in the song. What I used to do. I don't know if anyone else does this. Any other songwriters, vocalists out there? Except him. Okay, good. You ever do this? Write lyrics beforehand because you've already got music in your head? Mm. Patterns? Right. You do. I would have reams of this stuff. So show up for practice, and if someone had something new, I'd just flip through my catalog. and like, Okay, this fits. It fits what I had in my head. So if you're thinking open face surgery, yes. That's exactly the way it's supposed to sound. There are parts for sure that I, I could figure it out, but the other parts I was like, ooh. DeSalvo had so much trouble with that one. Mm. Abigor was like a real mouthful. Yeah, but that one, Tebow came in with that one one day, and that song was finished in less than 20 minutes. From the very first, like, I've got a new song, too. Wow, we have a new song complete. That's awesome. Abigor. 
As for the long shrieks, that was an accident. Uh, Dave Gallia came in one day with Gravage Decryptopsy. And I liked that opening rift so much and what Flo was doing with it that I had to... That, I can't do it anymore. I'm 54, I'm old. But I could do it then. And I actually did that on tour mm-hmm. in 2004, was it? Yeah, yeah, with the, the Back to the Worms. Yeah, we had Dan Mongrain now of Voivod, ex of Martyr, and doing a U.S. tour. And they actually included open face surgery as the ninth song. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to do all the non so vile, take a little break, and then come back and open with that. Thanks. So Dan Mongrain saved me. He said, you know what? Hyperventilate. And he's right. Holy shit, that shit works. You hyperventilate, you can actually do those 48-second screams, and it's okay just before, you know, the vein bursts. When everything goes black, you know it's over. I'm pretty sure I've had a long series of mini-strokes in my brain. I could feel like there was tiny cannons going off in my brain, and I would, like, wooze out a bit, still standing. I think the booze helps. <laughs> it's absolutely happened to me that I've screamed so hard on stage that I've forgotten where I was. Okay, true story. One time, I think 2006 or something, we're in Detroit, or as we like to call it, Destroyed. Was it Harpo's? Might have been. We're in the middle of I don't know which song. Doesn't matter. It's an, it's an old song. And all of us, coincidence whatever, synchronicity, we all got lost at the same time. (laughs) And we all found each other again at the same time and finished the song. And all I could say was, what the fuck was that? (laughs) Yeah. Spinal tapish. If there's going to be a fuck up, it's going to happen to cryptopsy. I've also heard uh, a story that while you're recording None So Vile, that Eric showed up halfway through the day that you were doing your vocals and you did your vocals in one day and you were severely I, drunk nope 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 all untrue i was drinking all day i had my bottle of glenlivet in the fridge i did my vocals and that's what a 30 minute album 32 minute that's right yeah so just the time to find like the next cue up the next song so what would that take about 35 minutes that's it, how long it took me holy shit one take when I was working in the Rez Nucleide, it was the same way. They called me Lord One Take. Really? I know my shit. I wrote it. We jammed it enough times. I don't need the lyrics in front of me. They're all up here. One take. Did you hear that, kids out there? <laughs> that's, that's how you record an album. <laughs> <laughs> so wow. I never actually got drunk, but I was on Glenlivet all day. Uh, what happened with Eric was he couldn't do that piano intro to Phobophile. It took him like 40 takes or something. It was like 3 in the morning before he got the final one. And Denis Cote, yes, him, the filmmaker, was our road manager at the time. All he could do was to pretend to walk downstairs next to a bar. You know, the the whole faking walking downstairs. That was his reaction. (laughs) It's like, yay, we're done. So he walked downstairs. Denis Cote. What would be the craziest tour memory of those early tours before he left the band, touring None So Vile, what would be the craziest one? Those Canadian tours. Those are pretty safe. I mean, even if we were quote-unquote headlining and would only have like an opening band, 
There's lots of stories, no crazy ones. Uh, I've grown to really, really hate Winnipeg. Because we always played the Empress Hotel, and we played for the opening band and one of their girlfriends. (laughs) This is a show? (laughs) So it's not crazy, it's just hateful. Uh, First time we played Vancouver... Blasphemy came to see us and invited it, uh, us to their house the next day. That was cool. Uh, second tour at this point, Steve Tebow was no longer in the band, so we had John Leviser. And it had been a really bad tour, the 96 tour. Uh, we lost a lot of money up until the final date, Saskatoon. No way. The town showed up <laughs> and they bought everything. Wow. And what they left behind was teeth, blood, and broken stuff. (laughs) And we were very pleased, so we drove all the way home without sleeping, and for once, we used the air conditioning. (laughs) (laughs) I also heard that when you left Cryptopsy, that you didn't realize the success that Nunsovile had until you came back. It didn't have a success at first. It was, we were becoming known, but we were only on their second album. Uh, these things come slowly, you know. I mean, this is not pre-computer era, but pre-all this now, you know, uh, internet stuff. I mean, the 90s didn't have all that. So it was word of mouth. It was, you know, snail mail yes, kind of yes, thing, yes. buying demo cassettes kind of thing. That's how it was. So I left because touring was not fair to my girlfriend. She was the one paying rent and food. And she was doing this on a cosmetician's salary at fucking Jean Coutu. That's just no fair. You, you can't do that to a lady. So I stopped cryptopsy and went and got a warehouse job. But at least it was fair. Did you follow the band at that point? Well, yeah, because uh, at this point, Steve Tebow had been made manager. And we were both good friends with Mike DeSalvo. So, and anyway, uh, this is when Steve still lived in Montreal. He's in Calgary now. But he had his epic New Year's party every year. And we all brought food and all our booze. And we had to take like all the extraneous stuff out of the fridge, like shelves. So we could pile. Uh, of course. And when we did this in 1998, Steve's fiance was on that time of the month, poor kid, and it really hurt her, so she didn't drink. So Steve and I and my lady friend had four, two fours oh my of God. 96 different beers to finish. We started at two in the afternoon, finished at 4 a.m. With 32 beers apiece. <laughs> and then she drove home. Oh, boy. <laughs> and she did it well. <laughs> she was drinking sessions. <laughs> but all the time you were gone, you didn't realize that Nun So Vile became a classic cult album. So I found out in 2003 when Flo called me back. Uh, he'd asked me to give English lessons. Y'all know I was an English teacher for 10 years. And uh, what is that man's name again? Martin Lacroix. Lacroix. Yeah. Um, The way Eric put it, we're me, man, his his stage banter is like, hey, London, what it is, see? So we're me, you must give him English lesson like you do to me, okay? Let's go. So I thought, yeah, all right, I'll give him a pre-demi, you know, I, I won't charge much. 
And we read it for a couple months, and he was learning. And then one day, Flo calls me and goes, so it's hopeless, right? Come on, it's coming. Yeah, it's hopeless. You want to come back? Uh, I guess that's it. So Flo comes and picks me up at my place. We go back to his place in Mirabelle, and Maurice Richard is there. The manager. Yeah, manager. Not, not the hockey player. Right. <laughs> and Denis Cote and Pierre Rimiard, and they're all saying, it's like, yeah, you've been away, and you don't know, but the band got like kind of popular. Oh, well, isn't that nice for you? Now you're back. Well, that's not so nice for me, then. Because <laughs> I'm not used to this shit. You're used to it. Was there a moment as you were gone that you wanted to come back, that you felt that you ever would come back? Never even thought of it. I was just busy teaching. Let's just touch on the teaching thing, because I speak to a lot of Cryptopsy fans when I'm selling at, at the merch table, hanging out with them, and they all think that you're like a, an elementary school teacher. So let's just debunk that myth right now. What did you used to teach English to? English as a second language to bankers and government people and the army and company people. I taught at National Bank, at Bell, uh, National Defense, uh, La Caisse de Depot, uh, just all kinds of places where people needed private or semi-private instruction, often so that they could keep their jobs. The pressure was on. I had a 98% success rate. I did okay. I have no doubt that you were excellent. Because people expected like kids to walk into their second grade classroom and that you would just come out of the casket. You know, this is what people had in their mind. Well, that's adorable. <laughs> I joined the band. I recorded The Unspoken King. It was not the best, most popular Cryptopsy <laughs> album. Please accept my papal blessing. <laughs> Did you listen to it? Yes, I have What it. was your opinion when it came out? Contemplate regicide, the opening riff. I remember when Alex wrote that in Australia, and it's such a great riff. I wanted to do that song, except I was out, so you were in. <laughs> For Steve Tebow's birthday in 2007, Flo came, and he sat down with me. Wormy, isn't it time you left again? No. Yeah. Oh, I haven't isn't heard the that story. Isn't the time you retired, you know, health problems? And it's true, the health problems. Every tour I did, I would get double pneumonia and come back and go back to work teaching with double pneumonia. It ain't easy. Yeah, of course, yeah. So it really was health issues, and Flo felt badly, but let's face it, I mean, you can't do that all the time. If you could travel back in time, you hate touring, but was there one tour that you would love to go back to and relive? No, there are moments I'd like to see again, because I've got them up here. There was one time we were in Chicago at the B.B. King's House of Blues, and the U.S. Army came. <laughs> all of it. <laughs> Think of all those jarheads. No shirts, combat pants, combat boots, bigger than you three put together. Each one of them, they're just these things. And that was the mosh pit. It was really impressive. <laughs> My penis really hated it. There was so much testosterone. I had a vagina for the evening. So this is horrible. But it was really cool. And then after the show, these two young ladies, uh, I, I think of Mexican extraction, their mom was with them, hiding behind a pillar, making sure I didn't touch them. They came and took souvenirs off me without permission. 
and I'm just kind of sitting there letting them because I see the mother behind the pillar peering at me. It's like, yeah, I can't protect my stuff because, yeah, she's there. <laughs> Same show. <laughs> so first the U.S. Army, and then I get robbed. Okay. A fan recently proposed a really interesting idea to do like a Cryptopsy era tour where you, me, and Mike all go out and we swip swap out songs. Would that be something you'd be interested in doing? Not so much a case of willing. Uh, I'm going to be somewhat more human just for a second here. Uh, Since my dad died, I'm taking care of mom who has Alzheimer's. Uh, I'm with her just about every day. I took a day off today, but I'm... You see where I'm going with this. Absolutely. I, I couldn't. That's the end of my humanity. Let's get back to this shit. <laughs> what is the craziest thing you've ever done on stage that you regret doing? What do you mean by crazy? I remember once, and this is when Tebow was in the band. My hair was longer and thicker. You've noticed I'm kind of like the guy in Scary Movie 2, the comb over guy in the wheelchair. <laughs> <laughs> that happens when you turn 54. It, it's sad. <laughs> So one time when I had, you know, a more decent mop of hair and Tebow's on my right, and I'm windmilling, my hair gets caught in his neck. So I ripped it out, and he was left with a chunk. So we burned it off. <laughs> that, that I'll always remember, because that, that really sucked. Another show in California in what was supposedly a haunted theater. I wound up with a backache. One of those, like, take your breath away. It's like, it's better not to breathe because breathing really hurts. Oh, shit, and I'm doing vocals. This is really going to suck. <laughs> <laughs> so it's hurting so much that I'm quaking and I'm pale. And people are coming up to me after and going, that was the most intense show I've ever seen. <laughs> And Flo came up, and I was like, no, it's because his back is sore. <laughs> Thanks, Flo. Um, uh, how much of the correlation between Sibo leaving and you being in Cryptopsy, was it difficult? I feel like you guys were a duo. Well, for a while, we were a trio with Flo. We were the three Beersketeers. Beersketeers. And it's amazing how much we could drink before a jam to really fuck up a jam. One time, I don't know if this place still exists, and there was a place called the Peel Pub. It does. Catherine. <laughs> still there? It does. It's still the same. Okay. It, so diff- different locations, ha- still the same. Do they still have that menu of shooters, 30 different shooters? I believe so. It's been a long time I haven't been. Okay. So Flo, Steve, and I go in before a jam one day and have the menu each. The waitress was not pleased. Three cabarets. <laughs> and we drank them in alphabetical order. And then had their dollar ninety nine plate of spaghetti, and then went and tried to jam. John Leviser was so pissed off. Flo couldn't even find his cymbals. <laughs> Steve was playing the wrong neck on his one neck guitar. He couldn't find it. I've heard the story that you almost died once because you passed out in the snow after having drank too much. Hell yeah! But you survived because you had so much alcohol in All your true. blood. All true. Yep. January 30th, 1986 is a Friday night. I'm with Steve Tebow and a lady friend of ours. We were listening to the aforementioned Metal File on Show FM that was on from 10 till midnight. And we listened to it on 
Labatt used to have a beer called Carnaval back in those days. It was a 6.2 percenter, which is nothing now, but back then it was something. So we drank that and a bottle of Jack and a bottle of Armagnac, which is a step up from Cognac. And we were at the lady's house and we left and I wasn't completely dressed for the weather. It was minus 20 that night. Got to the bus stop. Steve got on. He got home. I walked home between other people's houses, just taking a shortcut. And that snowbank looks so comfy. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, you know what? Ugh, it's all the way over there. I- I- I'll just stay here for a while. Jacket open, no gloves in the snow from like midnight till 6 a.m. I got up. My hair was frozen. I'd somehow managed to cut my chin. I had a blood sickle. <laughs> I was as pale as the head on this bed. I showed up at a neighbor's house, banged on his door, and that's what confronted him at 6 a.m. That's how he was this thing. And he recognized, that's the neighbor's boy. And I look at him and say, please set me on fire. Burn me, scald me, anything. Bastard called an ambulance. So later, when I opened my eyes and I didn't recognize that ceiling or those curtains, and that wasn't my heart monitor up there in my <laughs> words. It's like, huh, that's nouveau. <laughs> but there's curtains all around me, and I don't have hands. I have these big bulbous white things. It's like, huh, oh, I'll bet something happened. I'd better get someone's attention. So I held my breath. When you do that, heart monitors tend to beep a lot. So the nurses come running, and they see me and say, hi, how you doing? So it's awake, yes. So it doesn't need that catheter anymore, and they yanked it out. <laughs> yeah, nurse vengeance. My first pee was purple brown, and it burned, and I didn't like it. So I spent a month in hospital, all of February '86, and the doctors at first thought that I'd lose either my hands or my fingers or something. I've lost nothing. I have arthritis, and I've got deformities, but other than that, um, my hands became so wasted, like atrophied and shit, I could drink out of my hands and not spill a drop. I learned to operate a ghetto blaster with my face. (laughs) I got gangrene. And then when I got home, Steve Tebow told me he had a new band called Redemption with his buddy Ian, who became my butler. See how this all comes together? I love it. I love it. I love it. Your lyrics, where do they come from? I was writing lyrics before I was ever in music. I've just been a lyric writer for a long, long time. So I was ready for OCD, necrosis, cryptopsy. I had reams of the shit. I've just been writing but where, did, where, where does it come? I've heard that you're slightly dyslexic. Is that right? And that you see things I backwards. I love my dyslexia. <laughs> and and it, you see things backwards and then it spawns some creativity. Okay. So I'm biking along the Lachine Canal one day. And there's a signpost that says, Vue panoramique. You ever seen these things? What I saw was, Vue paranoiaque. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, when you see stuff like that, it, it, it makes things spin in your little head. There's like, I'm going to write some of this shit down. Some of the early stuff was extremely brutal and disturbing. 
you talking about pathological frolic? Yes. And I was at McGill with Steve. He was a student there in anthropology at the time. Steve Tebow again. And we went to the library for something, and I was just scouting around stuff, and I found some pathology book. And the photos I saw, black and white things, included, yeah, I kid wearing his mother's bra who hanged himself among other perversions and I thought that's poetry (laughs) (laughs) so when we recorded that song everyone in the studio not just the musicians but the engineers and hangers on everyone took part that that last part where and and then then we fucked him yeah so that's everyone that's like 50 people in the room under one mic hanging from the ceiling and they loved it. <laughs> I've heard that uh, there was a music video that was shot for Mutant Christ that never saw the light of day. Do you remember doing that? Was it Mutant Christ or Serial Messiah? Serial Messiah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Flo directed and produced it. We filmed it. I still have images of some of the footage. And he just kept it. And something else, and this is not to you know, flow bash at all, it's not, it just happens that a lot of the decisions come from flow that I wish had come out differently. We filmed a show in Montreal at the end of our tour in 2005 when we co-headlined with Suffocation. This is when Dan Mongrain was in the band. And it was a big production. There was some money and effort put into this, the lights, six TV cameras, the hearse, a used coffin, not my usual coffin. This was an old lady's coffin that the body was taken out of. So that was the smell. No way. And I'm like screwed into this coffin with that smell in the hearse till the members of Bloodshot Eye, all in black metal makeup, carried me to the stage and unscrewed it. How long did you wait in the hearse? Not long, 10 minutes. Okay. And then carrying's another five, so 15 minutes tops. No biggie. The sound guy was a stoner, and he forgot to plug in for sound. Uh. So what you have is a full-color, Mario Bava-esque documentary of pure brutality, and there is not a peep. And Flo decided to sit on this. Flo, we were doing the same set night after night, tight as can be. Just take the sound from another night and put it on. It might look strange. It's cryptopsy. We're the spinal tap of death metal. Do it anyway. <laughs> Never did. You believe that? You think that cryptopsy back in the day was the spinal tap? Was that the, the, the point of it? No, but we were very spinal tap-ish. I mean, I actually twice got lost. I got lost in Helsinki backstage. I've heard that they started a stat and you were on the toilet. Is that true? No, I was lost in Helsinki. I was, I was not on the toilet. I was trying to find my way to the stage. And I literally made it right on time, grabbed the microphone. Yeah. Like down to the last nanosecond. And I was running. You were on time. Yeah. Just. But I got lost. Lord Worm, thank you so much for coming being a part of the Vox and Hops one-year anniversary party. Happy anniversary, dear. The very first live interview. Thank you all for being here. Such a pleasure. Cheers.
Hey, thank you all so much for listening right to the end. You know that I love and appreciate that. Lord Worm was on fire. He was playing the crowd. It, it was just such an honor to, to watch and to have him be a part of it. It was so much fun. A huge, huge thank you to Lord Worm for coming out and celebrating the Vox and Hops one-year anniversary with me. I also want to give a few other shout-outs. Huge thanks to the following people, my wife and producer of the podcast, Jessica Buckingham. Uh, all of you out there, uh, you might not know this, but there would be no Vox and Hops if it wasn't for her support and her creative ideas and uh, her flexibility when it comes to me doing the interviews and her being home alone with the kids. Huge shout out and much love to my wife, Jessica Buckingham, the producer of the podcast. Also to the great people from Microbrasserie Le Fermenteur. Much respect, much love. Highway to Hops was delicious. So excited to have finally tasted it. After making it over a month ago, it uh, it was everything that I wanted it to be. It was hazy, it was dank, it was juicy. It uh, had little hints of uh, almost like a grapefruit essence in it when I know that there was none. It was absolutely delicious. I'm so excited to taste it at your brew pub, Microbrasserie Le Fermentar in L'Assomption. You guys should go out there, drink their beers. They're great people and they make excellent, excellent craft beer. Also to the folk of Turbo House for letting me conduct my one-year anniversary party in their establishment. They were super cool, super welcoming right from the beginning. There was no issues. If you want to have a good time, you want to have a good party, do it at Turbo House in Montreal. I hope you guys had a great week. I hope that you have a great weekend. This podcast was so special. I loved it so much. There will be only this one this week. I'll be coming back with two next week, though. So this is it. So enjoy life. Metal and craft beer. Cheers, Vox and Hopsets. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time. A secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now on Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts.